Welcome to the Catching Health Podcast. I'm Diane Atwood, your own personal health reporter. My guest today wants to make life easy for us. And my guess is it hasn't always been easy for her. She's Dr. Chris Northrup. Dr. Northrup has spent much of her adult life trying to help people, especially women, take care of their bodies and their health in a way that is often countered to what she was taught in medical school. Among many other things, she is the best-selling author of several books. The first was Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom, and her most recent is Making Life Easy, A Simple Guide to a Divinely Inspired Life. So thank you, Dr. Northrup, for taking time out of what has to be a busy schedule. It's kind of perfect because I'm trying to take my own advice and make my life easier. Like many women, I'm extraordinarily good at at, uh, working, (laughs) but I have found that taking my own advice is indeed the key to a happier, healthier life. So I'm taking my own medicine. Well, Well, that's good because I imagine you just published the book last month. You have to be on the road promoting it a lot. Well, you know what's interesting is now with social media and what you're doing, you can do almost everything from home or from your office, it's not like the past. Now, when I went, when I first published the first edition of Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom in 1994, everything began with an author tour, and you'd be met by an author uh, escort. They'd pick you up at the airport, take you to all of the radio stations, TV stations, all of that. That is a thing of the past. Now it's all social media. So I just got off a Facebook Live uh, thing that I did right from my home, my home office. And it's astounding to me that I was able to reach about 300,000 people right from my, my home office here on the coast of Maine. So that's where we are now. Now, you were a, a mainstream health reporter for years, and you know what that took to use the old traditional system to get information out. We don't need that system anymore, and that's pretty exciting. It is exciting, and I happened to uh, catch part of your Facebook Live. You had a a beautiful orange scarf wrapped around your neck. (laughs) Yes, yes. Nice color. But yes, I remember, I I hate to admit it, but um, when I first became a reporter, we had typewriters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, oh, yeah. And we had to make phone calls. And now as a blogger, I, I, I have such great ability to connect with people um, in a heartbeat. I can Facebook message, I can on LinkedIn or Twitter, and it's wonderful. It's amazing. I just had Gary Tobbs on my uh, radio show with Hay House, an internet radio show yesterday. And Gary wrote his latest book is called The Case Against Sugar. And as an award-winning science investigative journalist, he told me what he did to come up with what is truly a textbook of how we moved from knowing that sugar was the problem for our health to how fat got vilified. And he actually went back into the archives of the Massachusetts General Hospital and the, and the uh, Jocelyn Clinic from the 1800s, they still have the patient records from then. But as a journalist like you, trained in that way, he said there's so much information, but now with the internet, something that would have taken him a lifetime in the old way, he could do in a year. Right. 
I find yeah. that too. Although yeah. it, it is kind of fun to be able to go uh, um, into the libraries and into the archives of um, old buildings. I remember when I d did a whole documentary about Pineland, I got to go up to um, the up to Augusta and look into the archives and see the very first records of people. And uh, so I enjoy that. Yeah, absolutely. There's a place for that. Right. Absolutely. Well, you are a Western trained OBGYN doctor. You went to Dartmouth Medical School. You did your residency at Tufts New England Medical Center in Boston. So you were steeped in Western medicine, but something led you in a different direction. And I'm curious, how did that happen? <laughs> the, the different direction was there long before I went to medical school. <laughs> that is that is the honest to God truth. So I was um, always interested in angels and uh, shamanic healing. Uh, when my sister was killed in a car accident, my mother was led Almost, she said, it's almost like a different force took the wheel of her car. And she found herself in uh, church service of a spiritualist church in Buffalo, New York. And Margaret Haney was a woman giving the, the lecture and she said, or the sermon as it were, and she said, there's someone here whose name starts with a C and she wants me to tell her mother that she's okay and that her granny was in the car with her. And then what this was of such comfort to my family that my mother then had Margaret Haney come to the house and she channeled uh, a Dr. Andre. A completely different voice came through her. She suddenly had this man's voice and a French accent. And I was in medical school at the time, so it's not like I heard this, but they taped it. So they sent me the tape. So imagine you're in medical school, your sister's been killed, and a uh, an entity calling himself Dr. Andre comes through a sweet woman from Buffalo and tells you all about where your sister is and that she didn't suffer and that her grandmother, who had died the year before, was in the car with her. That's a different grid than you are normally uh, working with in, in medical school. And I've had many experiences like that. And also... My family members were kind of famous for signing out of the hospital against medical advice. I have a brother who would be dead if my parents had not signed him out against medical advice and fed him every hour on the hour with a tube. He wouldn't eat, and the doctors didn't know what was going on. And a nurse told my mother, if I were you, I'd get him out of here. The doctors don't know what's going on, and he'll probably die in here. And my mother had had a baby die before that, who wouldn't eat? She'd been on high-dose antibiotics the entire pregnancy. And um, so I, and then when I interviewed for medical school, my dad signed out of the hospital against medical advice. They thought he had had a, a heart attack. He didn't. He had infectious pericarditis. So my mother just went and got him. And when I came back from my med school interview, he was sitting up in a chair with fluid two-thirds of the way up in his lung fields. And he healed on his own. And he was right. They didn't know what was going on. They didn't know it was infectious pericarditis. And so that was my background before medical school. Then after my residency, I sat with Michio Kushi, the founder of Air One Natural Foods and Natural Health Magazine and the Macrobiotic 
introduction of macrobiotics to America from Japan. And I would sit with Michio, uh, and all these people would come to him after standard Western medicine had failed them. And because I was already very interested in people for whom Western medicine failed, having had some very up-close and personal experiences. And by the way, my dad's brother and sister were both medical doctors, so it wasn't like we were outside of the fold. Um, so, you know, when I'd sit with Michio and I'd see the charts and the medical people had given these people up for dead, and I would watch a lot of them heal by changing their diet and lifestyle. And then I watched the hubris, the absolute hubris of the medical profession um, telling them that what, what Micho was doing was quackery. And I think, how can you, who are, you are offering them nothing, and then they come back to you and they're getting better, and you tell them they're crazy? Something's wrong here. And now, years later, we have uh, that wonderful book, Radical Remission, um, by it's Kelly Turner. And Kelly was a PhD student. And she noticed that in PubMed, there are over a 1000 cases of spontaneous remission from everything. And Brendan, um, somebody uh, uh, documented that, but he never said what those people did. So Kelly said, why don't I, as my PhD thesis, study the people who had radical remission, who had spontaneous remission, and find out what they did. Because we have the documented cases. You can right now go to PubMed, put in spontaneous remission. You'll find the cases. She wanted to know what did they actually do. Was there a and common denominator? She came up with nine things that they did. Uh, not all nine, but there were nine things that were common to everyone. Everyone did at least one or two. And that's what she found. So she has the uh, Radical Remission Project, Kelly Turner. And her book is called Radical Remission. So finally, finally, you know, years later, we are codifying what people have done. Meanwhile, the medical profession still poo-poos this. And if you go back and you got over the thing, then they say they must have had the wrong diagnosis. This is still happening. Okay, so I have a couple of questions here. Um, I don't expect you to roll out the, all nine, but what are some of the things that she found? Oh, dietary change, supplements, um, connection with their innate spirituality, exercise, uh, forgiveness, making peace with their families, those sorts of things. Okay. Yeah. So how on earth did you decide to go to medical school? Isn't that the question yeah. of the year? Okay. I never intended to. I was a biology major at Case Western Reserve, and I went there because I had come to Maine every summer to study harp at the Carlos Salzedo Summer Harp Colony of America in Camden. And I loved Maine, and I loved the harp, and I wanted to go to college where my harp teacher was, and she was Alice Shalafu with the Cleveland Orchestra. I wanted to continue my harp study, and Case Western Reserve had a good biology department, so I was a biology major, and then I minored in applied music. Then I finished college, burnt out, did very, very well, got a few scholarships for grad school, 
took a year off, worked as a clerk typist at my boyfriend's office furniture store, and, and sort of became depressed about that, began to interview in places to become what I always thought I would become, which is a biology teacher. I kid you not. So I began to interview places, and it became very clear to me, as I'm kind of intuitive, that they didn't want ever to train teachers. They wanted me to say I was interested in research and become a PhD in biology. So I called my advisor back in college, Dr. Davis, and I said, would you write a letter of recommendation for me to join this uh, master's program or whatever? He says to me, Chris, that is like a thoroughbred running a junk horse race. Why don't you go to medical school? Honest to God, that's what he said. And, I, and then I talked to my dad and he said, you know, at the end of four years, you got to be something. You'll be doing something. You might as well have an MD after your name. And I thought, man, that's true. So then I just applied to medical school because an MD seemed like a much better degree than a PhD. And then when I was in med school, I saw a baby born up at Dartmouth. I started to cry. Nothing had ever looked so beautiful to me. I interviewed 12 places in family medicine and then realized OBGYN was what I really wanted to do. And that's what I ended up doing. So all of the rest of it, you know, is kind of, uh, wow, divinely guided. People think interesting things. Oh, you must have known you wanted to be a doctor when you were six. No, I liked fairies and plant pollination and uh, walking along the edge of the pond and watching frogs. And that's what I like. And I liked reading fairy tales. <laughs> so, so as a medical doctor, uh, yeah. believing as you did, yeah, that's where I decided that you probably faced some challenges along the way uh, within, oh. within your profession. Oh, yes. Yes. I had my, um, every time I would go to the doctor's mailbox at Maine Med, I was sure that I would have my eviction notice in there. Um, Dr. Mario Martinez, who wrote The Mind-Body Code, points out that all tribes wound the members who get out of line in three ways, abandonment, betrayal, and shame. And the medical profession is a pretty rigorous tribe. When I got my MD degree, my uncle said, welcome to the fraternity, right? So there's a certain uh, rules and regulations within the profession, and I was always kind of pushing the envelope, always, by just suggesting that food might be a good idea. Do you know, back in the day, like in the early 80s, if I talked to a breast cancer patient about nutrition, I would close my office door so no one would hear me. Hmm. Um, it was, it, that was heretical to suggest that diet had anything to do with disease. And you weren't telling your patient, forget the treatment, let's just go with the diet. You were never, suggesting- Never, never, And Well, what I was really suggesting is, uh, because I had seen radical remissions, because I had seen things heal with diet, because I'd seen people heal with a conversion experience spiritually, and because I also knew, I knew that the disease was always symbolic of a soul issue and that if we could get to that, 
then the treatment really didn't matter so much. I always knew there was a missing piece, the psychological, emotional, spiritual piece. And that's really what making life easy is about. If you keep thinking you're a victim of your genes, your life will be hard. It'll be a booze cruise. The minute you know there's a larger piece of you that isn't even in a body, your spirit, your soul, life becomes easy. Well, so I was going to get to that then. So you're saying that the, there's an essential truth that guides you, and yes. really it guides all of us if we can tune into it, and that is that our bodies and our minds and our souls are, are intertwined, and, and that it's important not only to know that, but to be able to connect all those different aspects of our life. Yes, and I think the most important is to know that you're eternal and we don't die. So that really helps. Now, what, tell, okay, so explain what you mean by that. What I mean is that the soul, our consciousness, does not die at birth. It doesn't go away. It's always there. I also believe that we have uh, past lives, and there's a great deal of scientific information on this. But it's always, it's always hidden there's a, a brand new book out right now called Surviving Death, A Journalist Investigates Evidence of an Afterlife by Leslie Keene, who is a New York Times bestselling author of UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record about UFOs. And, you know, this is a, Leslie Keene is a well-known journalist, and there's so much evidence in parapsychology, children who remember other lives, they've investigated all this. But if you start to talk about this, everyone thinks that you're a quack. So, so what's so funny about this is the tribe, through shame, betrayal, and abandonment, actually censors all of us from ever talking about this stuff. But that's but why in, you, rec hmm. you, you mentioned in your book, I apologize for interrupting you, but no, no. you mentioned in your book about finding your tribe. Yes, yes. And luckily for me, my family tribe never had any problem with these particular beliefs because of uh, the deaths in the family, because of our experiences, because of the fact that my dad was a dentist with a brother and sister who were rigid medical doctors. Uh, so he believed, my dad believed in organic farming. He had Weston Price's book about the effect of uh, Weston, Weston Price, Western diet on people's dentition within one generation. They would get dental cavities and their jaws would begin to get malformed and so on. Just one generation on a Western diet. So I had support from my original family of origin and also... From another dogmatic standpoint, my mother had been excommunicated from the Catholic Church at the age of 13 because she was uh, blamed for painting the Blessed Mother's toenails on the altar. This was 1935, and she hadn't done it. She was working her way through girls' Catholic school, and the priest came to her house and read her the riot act and told her that he was going to excommunicate her. And she said, fine, if this is religion, I don't want any part of it. And her mother stood by her, said, Edna is an honest child. If she said she didn't do it, she didn't do it. So I grew up with a mother who had 
defied what was a pretty amazing authority of that time frame, you see. So I was pretty well um, prepared for being a bit of an outlier. Yeah. So you talk about being able to connect with the divine part of ourselves. And that's, that's something that resonated with me because like I think many people, I'm pretty hard on myself and not inclined to think of myself as divine in any way. Um, every once in a while, maybe. But how does anyone begin to make that connection with their divine self? Well, there's a couple ways to do it. And I, I have a whole chapter on oracles. That's one of the things that's really fun. Um, and so what you do is you just ask for a sign. And sometimes you'll see a sign uh, in the, um, the license plate ahead of you. We're lucky in Maine in that there's a lot of these vanity plates. So it becomes uh, interesting. I'm always looking at the car ahead of me to see what the sign is. So I was going into a tango lesson in, um, in the West End of Portland, and I was grumpy that day. And a car swerved right in front of me when I got to the park. And the license plate said, fun. <laughs> and I immediately lightened up and I said, oh, right, yes. Yes, I'm going to go do this tango lesson because it's fun. This is not another thing that I have to do. That's funny. <laughs> so what you do is you begin to look for signs. Uh, and it's interesting to me. Everyone kind of knows this. Um, one of my friends was driving away from my house one evening in the winter on the radio, Carly Simon is singing the song, I'm a night owl, honey, sleep all day. On the right side of the road is a snowy owl just looking at her. Oh, wow. wow, wow. Yeah, this stuff happens all the time, well, all the, the time. I'll have to tell you, my father passed away about six years ago, and I'm one of eight kids. And so all eight of us were there with him and my mom, and he was at Gosnell Hospice House here in Maine. And um, three of my siblings, the moment my dad took his last breath, saw blackbirds, tons of blackbirds flying. And um, each of my siblings had a different perspective. They were looking out a different window or from a different angle, and they all saw it. And so me being the reporter type, I had to look up well, what do blackbirds mean? Right. <laughs> and, and what was it? Well, the, it, it's, uh, they signify transition, one of the things. So um, it, I even I wrote a little haiku about it. I can't remember what it is, but um, it was just about that his soul to us was being lifted from his mortal body, and he was transitioning. I mean, it became very, very powerful, and, and our, we, we actually have a little theme song. Whenever the Beatles song, Blackbird singing in the... Yes, I'm, yes. It's just, it's, it's the strangest thing, but it really, it's very meaningful to us. Well, there it is. And when you started to talk, I got total body goosebumps. So that is one of the signs that you're connected to this innate, intuitive, eternal self and that something of meaning is happening because you cannot, with your intellect, you cannot talk yourself out of a goosebump. It just happens. So that's from your innate 
nervous system that's going through the fascia, which is a secondary nervous system where all the acupuncture meridians are, that's lifting the muscle, the tiny muscle on each hair. <laughs> wow. Yeah. What's especially wonderful is you'd think that there might be at least one sibling who would poo-poo it. Nope. Nope. <laughs> nope. It was profound for each one of us. So That's the thing you can't... Right. So um, I was getting a reading from Kyle Gray, who is a Scottish angel communicator, very, very fun, tattooed, 20-something young guy in Glasgow. And he said to me, uh, as he was doing the reading, he's talking about the farm where I grew up, because somehow that just kept coming in. And then he was about to tell me that uh, my father came around as a bird. And I said, yes, there's a red-tailed hawk, and we just all call him Wilbur. Everyone knows that's my father. Oh, <laughs> oh well, it, it's, it is fascinating, I think. And, and you know, do you think you need to be religious or to believe in God in order to be able to connect with the divine? No, I think that uh, religion, the great religions of the world all have at their absolute center uh, the same kind of code of ethics. Um, I don't consider myself religious at all. I consider myself very, very spiritual. In fact, when my kids were little, they said, are we ever going to go to church? And I said, you can go if you want, but I don't want... I don't want to teach you anything that you'll have to recover from later. You're, you're already a spiritual, divinely connected being. And religions too often have done a terrible job of making people feel like they are miserable sinners. So I remember sitting in church. I used to play the organ in church uh, when I was a teenager and I would go to church with my dad because he went to the Episcopal church. My mother would go into the woods. She'd say, I'm going to my church, you go to yours. And I remember the general confession. And I sat there at the age of 11. You know, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep, and there is no health in us. Have mercy upon us, miserable sinners. And I remember this. I'm 11. And I thought, I'm 11. I'm just not that bad. <laughs> It's good that you would think that way because there are a lot of people who would really take that in. Well, I believe, and this is controversial as anything, but I believe that the reason so many people who are demented and there's no quality of life just keep hanging on is they are terrified of the judgment day that they learned as little kids in church. And there really is no judgment day at all. Well, that's something to look forward to. Yeah, yeah. The judgment is happening all your whole life long as you're looking for things to judge. What happens, I've studied near-death experiences a lot, actually. Very interested in that because I think most people have a near-life experience and then they kind of wake up with the near-death experience. And what everyone says is that they can't believe there's only love. And the only judgment is your soul saying, okay, that didn't go so well. You need to forgive yourself for that. But it's you, your higher self. See, it's just doing a, a check. Like, okay, 
how far did we get? And when are we going to come back and get it right? Which is why when you have that belief, you say to yourself, all right, I'm going to heal this thing with whoever, the mother, the father, whatever. So I don't have to come back and do it again. Because I really, I really believe that. But you can you can just make that decision and say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'd like a new contract now, please. I'm right at that per that stage in my own life. Like, okay, I would like a new contract because I don't want to learn things through stuff in my physical body. You know, I dropped a big piece of wood on the toe of my left foot, like I talked about on that Facebook live thing. And then I also have had a frozen shoulder on the left since uh, last summer it's way, way, way better, but I would, and I know what it's about. And I would really, really like to stop having things come through my body as my preferred way to learn. Now it served me well with writing the books. I always had very good examples of what I was talking about in my own body. <laughs> but, and you're sick you know, of it. You're sick that, of it. Yeah. I, I think we can do it in other ways. <laughs> do you have a, another book in the works? I, I have another book in my head and I'll, and I'm trying to hold myself back from getting a contract so that I can just have uh, at least four months where I'm not working on a book. And you will do what? You'll dance the tango and play the harp? And... I'm going to dance the tango, play the harp more. Um, I'm doing some fun travel. I'm doing a yoga retreat in the Dominican Republic. I'm going to visit my sister out in Scottsdale. Um, just booked another thing. A friend of mine built a phenomenal house on the Hudson River, and she's a, a filmmaker. So, you know, just more stuff like that, more fun. Because that's one of the things you say toward the end of your, your book is that um, it was in your chapter about sex, but you said we should pursue pleasure deliberately. And you're not just talking about sex. Um, it's challenging, though, to pursue pleasure deliberately when you're working, going to school, raising a family, writing books. So what's your advice for people? What you have to do there is you write down the 10 things. This, this can get in the old bucket list, you know, that you see in the movies. Uh, the 10 things that you would really like to do. And then schedule them in. So for instance, last year, no, I think it was the year before. Yeah, the year before, I had always wanted to go to Glastonbury in England. I mean, my whole life, I wanted to go there, you know, maybe stop by Stonehenge, uh, that kind of thing. And I finally did it because there's a part of me, same with learning tango. Uh, I said to myself, okay, you've always wanted to learn to dance. What are you waiting for? So the advice that I have is, Put it in your schedule because it's not going to happen if you don't get it in your schedule. The same with a, a yoga retreat or anything like that. And start small. Maybe you just want to have an afternoon off. I can remember walking up Exchange Street and hearing a seagull go overhead, thinking it was my beeper and feeling guilty for being outside on a weekday, on a beautiful summer day in Maine. Isn't that I awful? should be in the hospital working because that's how we're trained. Now you're talking, uh, when you talked about putting things on your schedule, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Timothy Pitchell, I think is how you pronounce it. Um, he's done years of research on procrastination. 
(laughs) (laughs) That's going to be a good podcast. Oh, I'm really looking forward to that. Well, you know, (laughs) sometimes the energy is not lined up, you know, so you procrastinate because it's not time yet. So as you develop this intuition, this innate part of yourself, the part that looks for the signs, the part that's connected to the divine, as you begin to live from that, you actually begin to feel in your body a yes or a no. You know, one of the places I want to go to is Iceland to see the Aurora Borealis. I'll I'll, I'll be there with you. That's on my list. (laughs) Yeah, and apparently it's a very mystical culture. They actually have uh, feng shui things uh, right in the towns where they will show you pictures of the energy in the banks and and all of that. Like, what's the etheric energy around all of these things? A very shamanic culture. So what I do with that is I say, okay, I want to go there. And then I feel around inside, like, when is the time? And then what often happens when you when you have that in mind, and it's not an absolute yes, then what will happen is there'll be some opportunity that will come. It, it, it always happens that way. Like my going to Glastonbury, I was invited to speak in London, and I told them that I would do it, but I wanted to go to Glastonbury first. And so what was arranged is that uh, Kyle from Scotland, another speaker for the Hay House Conference, would meet me in Glastonbury with Megan Watterson, who's from the States. We would fly over, and then they booked this whole thing in Glastonbury. But we had Kyle, who knows how to drive on that side that side of the road. And so we had this whole four-day wonderful little things going into the crystal shops. By the way, in Glastonbury, the people dress like they're in a Harry Potter movie. It's hilarious. Oh. I mean, it's it's really very wonderful. So that just uh, kind of came out of the blue. And at the same time, I had been at Mount Shasta just before. And I learned that Mount Shasta is, uh, there's only two places on the earth where a male and female spring come out of the ground at the same place. And uh, the male spring is a white spring because of calcite, and the female spring is red because of iron. And the only other place that that happens is Glastonbury. Oh, darned. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And I went to two places within a month. And that was kind of, you know, that was aligned with the divine part of me. Who could ever make that up? That's right. Now, I don't know if this is spiritual or not, but I found, especially in this phase of my life, that um, I I make some decisions based on a question I ask myself, like thinking about leaving a full-time job and deciding to be uh, a blogger, for instance. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Which is, you know, like I had to peel my husband off the floor, you're going to do what? Yeah, exactly, um, exactly. But but I knew that it's something it's something I'd always wanted to do to be a writer, not necessarily a blogger. Um, but I will now ask myself this question: So, how would you feel if you were on your deathbed and you didn't try this? Would you be angry at yourself? And the answer is always quite immediate and quite strong. You know, I knew that I would not be happy with myself at all if I was lying on my deathbed and didn't at least give this freelance writing gig a chance, for instance. That's right. That's right. 
Yes, exactly. Exactly. So if, you know, it's the old, um, you know, Tim McGraw, live like you were dying. Huh. And, and I think that this is really a very good way to live because you notice that on their deathbed, people don't regret all the great times they had, all of the relationships, all the risks they took. What they sit there and regret is all the times they didn't do what they had a chance to do out of fear. Mm. So I'm actually living now the way I actually want to live. But I have to tell you, it took me, and that was frankly what the whole Wisdom of Menopause book was about, is that's a, a reset button. We go through what's called a Uranus opposition at age 42. And I include some astrology, some milestones in the book, Making Life Easy, simply because they're so obvious. So 42 for men and women is the Uranus opposition where the soul comes up and says, what about me? And you begin to be released from the family trance. So we call that a midlife crisis. It's not. It's finally the soul saying, okay, what would you really like to do? You've gone through the family and you're doing what they want you to do, but what do you want to do? And then 52 is the Chiron return. And that often feels like a death. So one of my friends, his father died, his best friend died, uh, all, and, and the woman that he worked with for years had a stroke all at age 52. So that's his Chiron return. So there are very specific times in the life cycle, in the time cycle, that are wake-up calls for us. Well, do I have something to look forward to? Is there another uh, one coming? You know, they, they always are. So there's the uh, Saturn return at age 58. The first one is age 28, 29. And we all know all the rock stars who off themselves at that first Saturn return because the first Saturn return says, okay, I got to move into personal responsibility and survival on my own. I've got to be an adult. And a lot of them don't want to be an adult. And so they off themselves. And that was a course that my daughter took at Brown about the whatever they call it, the 21 Club, all those famous rock stars like uh, Jim Morrison who, who off themselves at their first Saturn return. Well, the second Saturn return is about thriving, like doing thriving. 60 by the Chinese is considered the second spring. You go back to zero. You completely reinvent yourself and you live from the inside out. And it continues. There's the Venus return. 88 is a really uh, wonderful time. I've had astrologic readings that uh, that tell me, you know, like 20 years from now will be the best years of my life. So it's always like that once you get into astrology. But but in order to to live fully from that truth, you have to take care of your body. And, and that's where my, you know, my medical stuff comes back. It, it, we have these stupid ideas in medicine. Well, you're doing well, quote, for your age. We need to stop looking at a mean curve, you know, that a, a median curve. And uh, like one of my experiences that was so odd, and I talked about this in Goddesses Never Age, I went in with my mother to, to go skiing. We were going skiing at Sunday River, and I had forgotten to get new ski boots adjusted to my bindings. So I go into the ski shop, and they ask me my age. And I look at my mother, and I said, why do you want to know my age? Like, I, I just want to check, you know, um, 
beginner, intermediate, advanced. I'd been skiing since I was two, and no one had ever asked me that. Well, I learned it's about liability, and they have an algorithm that after the age of 50, they have to adjust your bindings very lightly, you know, so that if you fall over in a, in a high wind, they won't be sued because they made the bindings too <laughs> oh tight. Gosh. And Oh, yeah. And um, I actually said this from the stage with my PBS special, and some dude from Atlanta was watching it. And he'd been involved. He worked for a ski binding company. And uh, he watched and he told me that, you know, someone should sue me for he was going to report me to the Federal Trade Commission um, for my stance on this. And because he had known about studies they did in Germany where they did torque studies on bones. And after the age of 50, bones were more apt to break. And though that is true for the general population, it doesn't need to be true for you personally, because we know on just in bone density studies, there are 80 year olds with the bone density of a 25 year old, and there are 25 year olds with the bone density of the average 80 year old. Right. So, yeah, you know, that's what I want people to see. And what medicine does very, very often is it bases all the testing on your age. Okay, now that you're 50, you should have your whatever. Now that you are whatever, you need this. So it's there are portals of age, and those become so the age becomes this kind of looming um, threshold into decrepitude. <laughs> Except for some of us. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, I just don't drink that Kool-Aid. And because I've been in that profession and I know the data that this stuff is based on, and I know that people are trying very hard to come up with public health guidelines to apply to a population yeah, I understand where they come up with it, but I, I know that every single individual can make a different choice. My mother went to Mount Everest Base Camp at age 84. That's 100 miles straight up, and there's no oxygen up there. Wow. And she did fine. I would never do it. That's not my idea of fun. Well, I think we're going to have to wrap up, unfortunately. And I, I would like to leave people with um, some words of wisdom from you. Uh, I don't know. Three steps, two steps, one step, get people started and um, making their life easy. What's one thing that when we say goodbye here, they can run off and do? Okay. First one, I would get a professional astrologic chart done. It is your soul's blueprint. This is not a parlor game like what you have in the newspaper. That's sun sign astrology. It's a parlor game. A real good astrologic reading will tell you more about your soul's trajectory than just about anything. Um, if you don't want to do that, just look up your north and south nodes. That gives you your soul's trajectory. Two, this is not your first rodeo. So if you're finding yourself up against something and you're frustrated, here's what I want you to do. Find yourself right. If you're angry, then celebrate being angry. If you're frustrated, celebrate being frustrated. Your emotions exist as your inner guidance system. They don't mean you've done something wrong. They're a guidance system. So use them to find out what it is you really want. Anger means that you're feeling left out, and that you don't think you can get what you need. You can always get what you need, but you're the one who needs to speak up, and you're the one 
who can attract it. Step out of the victim mentality, that's number three. Step out of the Bermuda Triangle of decrepitude, and that is the transactional analysis triangle of victim, rescuer, persecutor. If you are in one of those positions, victim, rescuer, perpetrator, you are not living from the stance of an easy life where you get the big picture. And then I got to give you a fourth, and that is that even though your society has likely taught you otherwise, joy, humor, pleasure are much higher vibration and they will attract, attract more of the same. You can't get sick enough to help those who are sick. You can't get poor enough to help those who are poor. But when you have the courage to raise your vibration and live in joy, you actually affect the entire planet in a very positive way. All righty. Well, I've certainly enjoyed our conversation and hope we can do it again sometime. Let's tell people where can they find your book? Where can they find you if they haven't already? Okay. Uh, the book is available everywhere, Amazon, every bookstore. I also recorded it, and so it's on Audible if you want to hear me read it. And drnorthrop.com is my website. I'm also currently launching an eight-hour women's health course. It's my 35 years of experience all put into an eight-hour online course, and you can find that information also on drnorthrop.com. All right. Well, thank you, and I hope you enjoy some time off. <laughs> I, I intend to. Going to Florida at, uh, at the end of February. All so. right. Well, okay. All right. Well, I've been talking with Dr. Chris Northrup, known worldwide for her women's wisdom. Her latest book is Making Life Easy, A Simple Guide to a Divinely Inspired Life. I'm Diane Atwood, and you've been listening to the Catching Health Podcast. Thank you. If you have any comments or questions about this episode or would like to suggest a topic for a future podcast, send me an email, diane at dianeatwood.com. You can connect with me on Twitter at Catching Health, and Catching Health is also on Facebook. For more health reporting that makes a difference, be sure to visit catchinghealth.com.